Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Okay, so welcome to today's podcast episode. Um, I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry-Khan, and today we're going to be talking about, I guess, ultimately, it's about change and how change happens uh, in different ways for our clients. Transitions are a big thing. And one thing that I feel I personally don't have a lot of experience in at all, but from meeting our next guest, you will find out it's actually quite a big thing. But when our clients are wanting to get back into work, how that's actually a really big change for our clients and the input that we as personal injury practitioners need to think about in helping our clients get back into work and the implications on litigation, the input that we need to provide for, support, all sorts. Um, It's fascinating. My next guest today is uh, Suzanne Guest, who is a registered occupational psychologist for Work in Mind, her company where she works with people um, who have brain injuries and who do want to get back to work. It's been something on their agenda or something that the concept of work, I suppose we will talk about, we will talk about, but what work means for our clients and how we can be supportive in getting them in there. And, And Suzanne is the person to talk to us about it. So here we have Suzanne Guest. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, not at all. It's an absolute pleasure to not only speak to another psychologist, but one that isn't about sort of working in the mental health field in the way that clinical psychologists like myself do, an occupational psychologist. That's um, a whole branch that I've got to say I am pretty ignorant about. So tell us, what is a registered occupational psychologist? I think one of the great things about psychology is there is such a broad subject mm. and does look at lots of different areas. And occupational psychology in itself is actually quite a broad area. So it's looking at the psychology of work, and that can be lots of different areas around work from things like getting recruitment done in a really good, robust way. So we know successful companies like Google have really stringent recruitment policies that they use a lot of psychology to get the right people in in place. And then there's things like looking at well-being at work, those type of programs that might be in place. And I work in vocational rehab, which is helping people get back to work or maybe finding new work after they've had a brain injury or another serious kind of injury. Really interesting. And do you have, like, so you're a registered occupational psychologist. Is that the role specifically of a registered occupational psychologist? Or is that something that other people can do as well? I mean, you know, you're, you're very skilled. You're obviously chartered. You're coming from quite an authoritative position. There are other people who work in vocational rehab. So because it's been an area that's quite unregulated, really. Mm. that there's often a lot of occupational therapists work in vocational rehab and and they do it really well Um, Mm. and then there can be other people who call themselves other types of psychologists maybe business psychologists or work psychologists 
and they've not necessarily had the same psychological background that somebody who is registered would have. So to get onto your MSc in occupational psychology, one of the approved courses, you have to have graduate basis for registration with the Mm. British Psychological Society. So you've covered that broad spectrum of mental health, of child development, um, of, of cognition. So you've already got a good understanding of psychology and then you go on to do a master's. Some of the courses that are maybe more business psychology or work psychology, that could be somebody who's got a business background mm-hmm. and then they go on and do a, a top up in psychology. So this psychology is not quite an afterthought, but not maybe not um, as as ingrained as it would have been with somebody who's done the psychology degree before and you know they do work quite successfully maybe within the recruitment side or the team building side those type of areas Um, but I think when you're working with people who are quite vulnerable Mm. such as somebody who's a brain injured person I do think it is really important that yet you do have that the, the status that goes with being with a registered organisation like I'm regulated by the HCPC mm. and I think they do hold you to account and I think that's really important because the people we are working with need somewhere to go to if they feel that they're not being treated correctly. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. So it's really interesting that you share that with us because I think that's, that's going to become increasingly more important as uh, regulated um, services for brain injury is particularly, you know, when when there is a sort of vocational element to it, you know, I think that that's becoming more and more important in the work we do for sure. And there is something like you say about safety around that work. I think it means it's going to mean something different to me than it does to you being in the vocational rehab field and thinking about what employment and what meaningful employment actually means. So when you talk about helping people search for work (laughs) yeah what what could that look like well a lot of my work is helping people go back to their original job that they maybe would have had before their injury Mm. um and then sadly that's not always possible it could be that they work with a company who are quite small and and just couldn't keep a job open for a long period of time or it could be that somebody's so injured that it's just not feasible to go back to that job so Mm. What I look at doing is going through some vocational guidance exercises and working out what sort of transferable skills somebody's got, looking at where their interests are, if there are any type of restrictions, and seeing if we can marry all those things up and come up with a job goal to aim for. One of my little bugbears is that people will often kind of go, oh, yeah, um, they had this injury and she's just always really wanted to work for the BBC. And it almost feels like because somebody's had a really nasty injury, they're going to get a dream job. And and unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. So Mm. it's looking at, well, what is it about working at the BBC that you might like? And it could be that you want to work for a big organisation or it could be that it's the communication element that you like. So it could be that you 
have to work with somebody and tease out the interests and the mm. skills and, and, and start looking at other employers that might be able to offer the same type of satisfaction that yeah. you would get for, for your dream job. And that doesn't mean you can't apply for jobs at the BBC, but you know, you don't necessarily just get a dream job just because you've had an injury that's, you know, really competitive industries are, are mm. just difficult jobs to get. Mm. No, I can I can imagine that. And 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 it makes me think about sort of where people's expectations are about themselves at that stage and um how much they've perhaps accepted or acknowledged what has happened to them and what the impact of what's happened to them has on their ability to work um and I'm, i mean as a clinical psychologist i think a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy and i'm just wondering if that i mean that's about values i think you talked about underlying interests you know trying to understand what what it is that that particular job breaks down into you know what what is the you know the the interest value of that and that feels very act to me in acceptance and commitment therapy but I don't know how you would frame it would you frame it in that way or does that is that something is that a framework that you would even use to be honest that's not something I've ever really thought of in that kind of way but it does I suppose it does make sense I I look at uh, there's a model that Hertzberg um, came up with about looking at different factors that somebody has within a job and mm. there's the hygiene factors which are things like your job safe and mm. you, you get paid and, and quite basic things and then there's the other factors that are what give people the enrichment at work which is doing something interesting and feeling valued and the opportunities to use goals and and things like that so I work more with looking at what somebody actually wants from work and seeing if we can sort of marry that up with what is around in the job market Mm. and I always struggle with the people who maybe didn't like their job before and, and you're supporting somebody back to a job they didn't like. And, you know, some people stay in jobs they don't like because it pays well. And, mm. and that's okay. You know, if that's, mm. if that's somebody's choice, that's okay. And what I try and do there is help somebody make outside of work as enriching as, as possible. So if somebody's working purely for the money, then find some hobbies or interests or make sure that there's a good social life or they're saving for that holiday that they really want or they've they've got the house that they want and they're not just doing something that's awful. And I also think there's unpacking when somebody's saying that they're just working for the money, what does what does that mean? So I've talked to people who I've got one particular guy in mind who was brought up in quite a poor area had had done incredibly well for himself and he didn't particularly lead an extravagant lifestyle every time he got a bonus he paid money off his mortgage or he put it into his pension but he just Mm. didn't want his family to have the same upbringing that he had Mm. so actually when if I was suggesting things like reducing hours he's kind of seen me taking food out of his child's mouth because Mm. It, you know, he wasn't working for a Rolex watch or a Ferrari or, or, or whatever. It was actually working for family security. Mm. So it's, it's understanding where that person's coming from and 
and what matters to them and you know I think sometimes we all want to be a bit cuddly and fluffy and get somebody to a really lovely dream job but you know if that's not your client's goal and they want to do something that brings a good wage in then you know we need to support to do that yeah absolutely does work always have to have a salary attached to it because meaningful occupation, which is a, a more of a, an occupational therapy phrase that I'm, I'm borrowing, it just it feels like there doesn't have to be a salary attached to it. And that being occupied and fulfilled and, and some of the things that you've shared, does that fall in your remit as well? Having a sort of meaningful life, if you like, or occupation? Yeah, very much so. So I do work with people who have been really terribly injured and some people it just isn't feasible to go back to work because the physical injuries are too great or it could be the cognitive impairment is leaving somebody with a lot of fatigue um Mm. or you know the, the social skills problems or those type of things so I do support a lot of people with accessing voluntary work because people still feel like they want to contribute to society and and have that title. We do introduce ourselves with what we do and we, you know, people often want that label. So working in an environment where you can potentially work a couple of hours, where you can do part of a job, where people understand if you have good days and bad days, that's really vital for somebody's sense of identity to just be able to contribute and have have that that purpose and and something to get up for Mm. Uh, I also support people to access things like exercise classes or singing classes or different hobbies where there's a structure to somebody's week and again Mm. they've got something to get up for they've got the social elements that work give them you're still achieving goals so say if you're going to a dance class just learning to do that dance better or learning new steps you're getting that sense of achievement and enrichment to your life Mm. but in in a slightly different way yeah right might sound like a silly question but um is there a lot of work for you in the sense of are there lots of people because I work with very catastrophically injured clients and the concept of going back into work for the vast majority of my clients is it's just not an option I do have a lot of uh, child clients as well pediatric cases but for the adult cases it's just not it's not going to happen in the salaried work sense I suppose it's a two-part question part is what kind of presentations you know would you be working with when it comes to sort of brain injury and the second thing is are there a lot of people with that present with those presentations that could do with your help and that of of similar um services yeah there are there are um a significant number of people who mm. would have had brain injuries some you know would have been classed as having severe brain injuries mm. and in the early stages work is nowhere on the list of priorities when you're looking at stabilizing health and developing compensatory strategies but there is potentially later down the line either seeing if it is feasible to go back to work some people just 
need to try. So if they're in a situation where the job's open to them, they just feel like they need to give it a try or have those conversations. And then for the ones who were really injured and it, you know, it, it's just not possible at all, then I suppose it's looking at helping somebody get a structured week or mm. helping somebody access volunteering. Mm. And people think that voluntary work is sorting clothes in a charity shop. <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people do that and actually quite enjoy it. But there's loads oh, of... So many things that yeah, you could do. Yeah. Around, you know, things around animals or sporting organisations. There's work around with children um, the environmental there's a loads of environmental projects that people can get involved with so mm. there's still you know projects and organizations that people people can be supported to access if, if they feel like they want to mm. no that's yeah okay fine I mean obviously my my experience is obviously of a different client group but there are there are going to be lots of our audience listening in who are think who may well be thinking crikey actually that's a bit of food for thought you know is is there a sort of checklist that that you might sort of suggest actually you know if your client you know how you know uh, you know as a as a case manager or as a a, a lawyer or a therapist you're you know there are sort of questions that might be asked over time that might make us as professionals think huh i need to get in touch with work in mind with with Suzanne Guest and and see if there's some mileage in 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 doing something like you know what what kind of I don't know um, things should we be thinking about what I normally look for is I want to see at first that somebody's coping at home Mm. so you know I need somebody who can get themselves up in the morning and get get them dressed and be out at at the door at, at time we need to, you know, somebody who's who's able to get meals prepared and, and feed themselves. You know, it could be a partner that's doing that and they did that pre-injury. Mm. But I, I think if somebody's in chaos at home, mm. they're not going to cope at work. So home's got to be right before work mm. can, can even be in the equation. And then we need to be looking at somebody being medically stable so we know that a lot of people with brain injury have epilepsy and mm. I'm looking for that epilepsy to be fairly well controlled. You know, obviously somebody mm. works with machinery or, or a driving job or works at heights or on a building site, things like that. It, it, it's not a suitable environment for somebody who's got uncontrolled epilepsy. So I'm wanting to know that somebody's medically stable. And then looking at things like fatigue. So is somebody able to do some activities and still have energy left? So one of the things I always say is if my client comes home from work and all they can do is go back to bed, I fail. Mm. You know, we don't mm. we don't go to work to to you know that be the be all and end all. I have a social life, or I did before COVID, <laughs> um, around <laughs> around my working. So somebody have after an injury is entitled to a social life. So there's looking at has that person got that gap in their life that work could be filled. What 
I do always try to encourage is really early on after the injury is for somebody to keep lines of communication open with the employer because I suppose the optimum really is to try and go back to the job that you had pre-injury. Mm-hmm. You're going back to a familiar environment, you're going back to people who care for you, you're going back to a job that you knew. So if you can get back into the job that you was in before, that's that's always the best solution, I suppose, but not always possible. But mm-hmm. if that communication can be kept open, and you know, quite honest communication of you know this person's not looking at coming back for a good six months and sort out the communication with the employer. So hmm. I think employers are often painted as the bad guy in in this scenario. And you know, don't get me wrong, there are some bad employers out there, but there are an awful lot of really good ones. And I've had employers say to me, "We just didn't know what to do," and They've had a call often on a Monday morning to say that one of their employees isn't coming into work because they're in a coma. And, you know, that must be really shocking. Mm. And and often it's the line manager who takes that call because the partner's ringing into work and they just know that they work with somebody called Dave. So they ring up and speak to Dave or maybe they've been on a work to do with those people. So they're often quite distressed by somebody being seriously hurt and and the employer needs support too so at a time when things might seem quite hopeless if there is somebody who can just make contact with the employer and see if there are ways of keeping the job open but being realistic that you know we're not this isn't somebody who's going to have six weeks off and be back at work this is somebody who's going to be off quite a long time and then need some support you have a more chance of making something work then. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, actually, because it doesn't matter how skilled up or well supported your client is if you're putting them in an environment which is unstable as a result of this, you know, the client's needs um, and they can't support the, you know, they don't feel supported and they don't know how to support, therefore, the client. It's Surely it's a recipe for disaster. And, you know, the impact of that can actually be probably very traumatic. I had never thought about kind of getting employer buy-in or, if you like, or employer sort of support into it. And I realise, actually, this is quite, what you do is quite a big job, therefore. Yeah, I think a lot of it's around building relationships with the employee. Mm. And also educating your own brain injury and that, that's yes. where I sometimes would work with other members of the team so I do sit within a, an MDT um, and it could be that we look at transferring the strategies that the neuropsychologist or the occupational therapist has developed and transfer those over to work and you know mm. I always say to employees I don't know the first thing about engineering so why would why would an engineer know the first thing about brain injury and yeah. I'm a big believer in just everybody putting their cards on the table and finding a way to make it work. So sometimes employers have shift changeovers that means it's just not feasible for a person to work at certain times. But that doesn't mean that they have to work their full eight-hour shift to start back. They could do a shorter number of hours. Mm. But, you know, often there are restrictions around what time works for the employer. And there's certain things that would be better for the client, for example, 
if they can avoid traveling in rush hour at the start of the graded return to work plan, they automatically help reduce fatigue just by not travel, you know, traveling for half an hour as opposed to an hour because they're not traveling in rush hour. So it's just about facilitating communication, I suppose. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I, I really see that. And do you, you know, are there any telltale signs that you would say, oh gosh, now that's possibly something that's probably an empl- an employment setting that is not going to work for a client? And how would you kind of get over that? How would you, you know, sometimes it, I guess it's about putting extra support in for the employees, or is it also about accepting that it's not going to work and working then with the client and their support in refocusing you know what you know where they can get the work that would have otherwise been provided by the this employer if that makes sense yeah I think I think certain environments aren't great so for example if you've got somewhere that's very brightly lit very noisy maybe machinery that's quite fast moving Mm. we we know that our clients don't cope well with a lot of stimulation Mm. so you think you've got the lights the noise and then there's the potential hazards. Those type of environments, I'm always very cautious of supporting mm. people back to. Mm. There's, there are options around there. So there's the access to work scheme that you can apply to get funding for a work buddy. So you can get somebody who can work alongside that person who can prompt and support and help keep safe. So I suppose ultimately there's no environment that you would completely rule out, but I suppose you have to look at at situations that is that person able to do that job. So, for example, if somebody was a professional, they say a surgeon, they they need to be able to safely operate on somebody. Right. So that would be a a situation where you would look to support for their regulatory body and they would have to go through their checks and balances that they would go through to to show that they're safe. So I suppose there's, you know, there's very high risk environments, but lots of lots of other jobs have challenges in there. And it's, it's looking at finding ways around them. One of my little bugbears, though, is that I think sometimes family members and sometimes other professionals kind of try and treat the workplace like a rehab unit. So Mm. one of my first jobs was in a brain injury rehab unit and we had some gardens and we had a woodwork shop and there was a mechanic shop and there was computers and the clients tried all different jobs within there and if they didn't like it they went on to another and that was absolutely fine that's what the unit was for but if you're an employer you can't just suddenly create jobs in different departments because it suits somebody Mm. so you know I've had people who maybe worked in they've worked in a manufacturing environment and his family was saying well you know could he have a little practice on the computers because he might want to get a different job working with computers. And, you know, he's having to explain to the, the family that it's not his employer's duty to train him to be good for somebody else. You know, if he wants mm-hmm. to learn computer skills, that's outside of work. And I think there is sometimes that, you know, just having a bit of respect for the employer as well, that they're a, a profit-making organisation. 
they want to support that person, but at the same time, they can't completely turn the whole factory or workplace upside down to accommodate one person. So it's just being realistic, really, that it's not a, you know, we're not in a rehab unit, we're in a workplace and, and people have to do a meaningful job there. Mm-hmm. I like that, actually. I feel like that's fair, balanced and crucially sustainable in terms of the goal that you're trying to achieve for your client. And it's about, uh, you know, that classic, um, it takes two to tango, but all, uh, or maybe not quite the right saying, but, uh, you know, it, it, both people need to be to be met, to be meeting each other halfway, that kind of idea. And it's not all on the employer. It's not a right, I suppose, that sense of right or duty, even it's, um, you know, within the realms of being an employer um, and respecting those boundaries I suppose is part of what you balance for your clients with their needs and wishes. Yeah absolutely so you know the employees are bound by the Equality Act and, and are obliged to make reasonable adjustments but I think people hear the word adjustments but actually the word reasonable is also mm. as important so yeah. I think there is just looking at supporting both parties and and just trying to make it work. And often both parties do want it to work. I do think we we often paint employers in a a bit of a bad light and, and, you know, that's unfair. They are human beings too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I know I can see that. Coming back to kind of litigation and personal injury, you talked about earlier, you talked about kind of if clients want to get back into work, as a, as a sort of later goal, perhaps after some of their rehabilitation, et cetera. How does that sit when in the litigation process? That may be something that at the time of litigation, I'm thinking, may not have been a question particularly, but then post-litigation, after settlement, it might be a very real and realistic goal for the client. Given you've talked about how big a piece of work it is to get someone in to um, employment, the fact that it is a massive transition, not just from the client, but from the employer's perspective, that, that's obviously going to come at a cost. How, do, how does that get built into litigation or does it not sometimes? Well, employment should be a factor within litigation, whether it's looking at somebody's loss of earnings and somebody's future loss of earnings, particularly if you've got somebody who's young, then Mm. they've got a lifetime of income to make up for. So often work has been looked at as whether or not it's feasible for somebody to go back to work or not. So one of my issues is often that work can be a little bit of an afterthought And I've had cases where I've had instructions and six months later is their court date for the the compensation case. Mm. And my worry with those cases is that we might get somebody back to work and doing a reasonable number of hours. But what we've not tested is have they been able to do that for a long time? Mm. We know that with brain injury, one of the most difficult things to to cope with is change. Mm. And workplaces are evolving environments. You get new computers, your manager changes, you Mm. make different products. Workplaces change all the time. So I think if work's going to be looked at, it should be looked at earlier on within the case if, if it is feasible for somebody to go back to work. 
because I think the worst thing that could happen is that somebody settles on them being able to go back to work and then they miss out on future loss of earnings because Mm -hmm. they've gone back to work for 30, 35 hours, but realistically, long term, they could only work for 10, 15 hours. That's a big disservice to to that person. Mm -hmm. Later on, if, if it has been established that somebody isn't able to go back to work and their case is settled, then that would be something that's factored in, would be looking at how time's occupied meaningfully and, and it, you know, it would come out of, of that budget if if uh, somebody's decided that they're wanting to either go back to work or go back to voluntary work. Yeah, no, okay. Well, that, that's, that's good to know because I just had a bit of a moment thinking, oh, crikey. Um, um, it's a bit, you know, the equivalent of being a paediatric prof- pr- practitioner, which I am for some many of my cases, you know, kind of getting kids back and get, getting them into school and getting the best out of it. I know it's a different emphasis entirely, but it is a big piece of work. And it just occurred to me that that's often built in <laughs> to a case. And it sounds like you're saying that it, it does need to be thought about. Um, it is often thought about, but perhaps the implications of it are perhaps less thought about. And that needs to be maybe something that, that that we as practitioners need to bear in mind with our working age, work able clients. And I guess that leads me on to my um, my my final question, which is usually um, the one where um, we give our audience an opportunity to think about the work they do with clients that fit the fit the fit this topic really what would you as an expert of getting people into work advise us as personal injury professionals to think about what are your top tips maybe your your top three if you can my my three top tips I think the first one is have the discussions about work early so Mm. obviously somebody needs to be medically stable but Mm. have the have those discussions early and keep the communication open with the employer as early as possible mm-hmm. um, and sadly that might mean ending employment with, with dignity for somebody it's just not possible but I would say earlier the better for yeah. that. Mm, thank um, you. My, my second one would be that workplaces aren't rehab units so just just be mindful that somebody would be going back to a role they need to be income generating if they are in that role um you know it's not just an area that somebody can go in and practice things and I think the bit that often gets missed off is is just remembering that employers need support too and and actually they're quite receptive to getting support as well so they you know Mm. would, would have had a relationship with that person before their injury they're quite fond of them and and they want to make the situation work. So look at finding ways to support the employer as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that that one's really, uh, that's been a bit of a game changer for me in terms of my, you know, how I think about it, that, that last point about thinking about employer support. And yeah, I, I just, I, I think the, the ideas that you come up with, they are, there's such a crossover with the clinical world in terms of the well-being element and the the, the the coping aspect of it what point would people need to think about employing you and your service Suzanne uh, the tips that you've you've suggested things that maybe 
our legal case management and therapy uh, colleagues can think about on behalf of the client. But at some point, they're going to have to they're going to think about possibly referring on to you. And what how would we know when to refer on to you? I often find that the earlier that I can be involved in the case, the better. So what I've done on some cases is made contact with the employers and just kept that communication open, but then sat on the back burner while the other therapists worked their magic to Mm. help somebody get ready to be able to return to work and then pick up again when the person's ready to go back to work. And I often find it's really difficult to be the second person to contact the employer because your average employer doesn't understand how an MDT works. So they Mm. just sort of attach themselves to the first person that makes contact and if that's the case manager because they've got manager in the title they think they're going to the most senior person Mm. so it's often for me is the earlier I can be involved the better but that might be that I'm involved for quite a short period of time at the beginning and then sit in the background and then get really stuck in later on when that person is ready to work Mm, really helpful I think ultimately to summarize our our chat um, which has been really really interesting for me I kind of um, I've got a client actually who may well uh, you know I'm going to out myself and just say I I would never not necessarily have thought about a service like yours but having had this conversation I'm thinking how could I not need need your your support I, I think there's a there's that transition from sort of university to um, to work as well that probably has uh, well not probably but almost certainly will have that sense of coping with change and um, making sense of sort of em- employment as a new concept and a new experience not just that that fits the stage and the abilities of of the client um, and I I can imagine that I I will be knocking on your door very soon about that. But I mean, uh, what it's highlighted to me is that this, you know, it's a big piece of work getting someone back into to work. It's not, you know, and it's not, as you say, it's not rehabilitation. So there needs to be a lot of thought and space in the package to accommodate it and getting in there early with those questions, with those ideas and possibly getting someone like you, Suzanne, in early enough to then kind of survey, if you like, uh, for, for, for a chunk before you're actually doing any um any actual sort of active work on behalf of that client at, at the right point I think has, has, has been really helpful to think about um, maybe people who work with you already will be thinking yeah no obviously this is what you do but for people like me who have never had to think about it um, although now will be thinking about it really informative so thank you Suzanne um, if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that and the best way is to go on to my website, which is www.workinmind.co.uk. Brilliant. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But Suzanne Guest, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and recording about this really interesting and big topic. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Not at all. And to those who are listening, thank you so much for tuning in again. As always, if you enjoyed the episode and you are able to like, share, comment um, on whatever platform you use, we would be always grateful. But for now, we'll 
close the session and um, we'll catch up with you another time. Thanks for now. Bye-bye. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 